Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him this is a remote place, they said, and it's all very, already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Um, the first bit is the feeding of the 5,000, but as I spoke about that earlier this year, I thought I'd speak about Jesus walking on water. 
So for me, there are some passages in the Bible that you read straight away that captivate your heart and inspire you. For me, that'd be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's just extraordinary. And there are other passages that you read and you, you have to wrestle with them a little bit before you come to love them. And I have to confess that this was one of the ones which I struggle with. Uh, I had a reaction not dissimilar to the little boy in the story about the squirrel. I'm fairly sure most of you will have heard it, but I, I will repeat it for anybody who hasn't. The story is of a vicar, and he has his Sunday service, and as usual, at the beginning of the service, he gathers all the little children around him for a little lesson before they go off to children's church. And on this particular morning, he has decided to give a lesson on industry and preparation and to use the squirrel as an example. So what he does is he says to the children, I am going to describe to you an animal, and I want you to put your hand up as soon as you know what the animal is. Are you ready? Okay. This animal can be found in this country. It lives in trees. It can be gray or red. It has little paws and sharp teeth. Anybody got it yet? No? Okay. It eats nuts. It sometimes hides the nuts and can't find them. Nobody got it yet? Oh my goodness, it's got a great big bushy tail. Finally, one little boy tentatively raises his hands. Oh, Johnny, that's wonderful. I'm so pleased you've got it. Tell the other girls and boys what it is. I know the answer is Jesus, but I can't help thinking it sounds a bit like a squirrel. <laughs> well, that's the sort of reaction that I had when I first heard this story. Because this story also demands the answer to a question. But it's not a what am I describing, but a who am I describing question. Who is this man who can walk on walk water, who calms a storm, who can feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish, who can heal the sick, forgive the sinner, and even raise the dead. Is he a sham? Is he a prophet? Is he a messiah? Or is he something else? And for many years when I considered this passage, this question made me squirm. Because like the little boy in the anecdote, as a Christian, I knew the answer I was supposed to give. This man is Emmanuel, God with us, love incarnate. But to me, this narrative didn't seem to describe someone loving. The person described in this passage seemed to me to have very little compassion at all. Let me explain the way I saw it. So we know from the passage preceding this that um, the disciples have already had an absolutely exhausting time of ministry. That was why Jesus got them to row across the lake so they could have some time out and recover. But by the time they get to the other side of the lake, before they even get out of the boat, the whole crowd has arrived. And they then have to start ministering again. And Jesus provides them with food because nobody's even eaten because it's been so frantic. And then... Um, Obviously, there's the multiplication of the feed, and the disciples collect all the scraps, and there are more scraps than they started off uh, when Jesus prayed over the feed. And at that point, 
Jesus then commands the disciples to get back in the boat and go back over to the other side of the lake, whilst he dismisses the crowd and goes up onto the mountain to pray. And that's where we join them. In verses 45 and 46, at the end of this very long day, we see the disciples set out. And in verses 47 and 48, Mark tells us that later that night, Jesus sees the exhausted disciples from his mountain outlook. By this time, they must have been battling against the waves for hours, endeavoring to follow his instructions to get to the other side, but failing. And let's remember, this wasn't a sailing boat. This was a rowing boat. I don't know if any of you have ever tried rowing. I've tried rowing. Five minutes is a killer. It uses every single muscle within your body. Rowing against the waves after an exhausting day must be, at its very least, dispiriting. I suspect by this time they were desperate and actually afraid. So when I first heard this story, I was waiting for Jesus to step out and rescue them in their peril. Everything within me expected him to leap into action. And frankly, I was flabbergasted when I heard that he didn't actually do anything until dawn. I couldn't fathom how somebody loving, knowing the peril that these men were in, and knowing it was within his power to do something about it, did nothing. If he knows at dusk that they're struggling, why does he wait till dawn to do something? Where is the love in that? But that wasn't even my only issue. When Jesus finally does head out onto the lake, my expectation is that he will immediately go and rescue the disciples because they've been there for hours and they are at the end of their tether. But once Jesus arrives at the scene, he acts as if he's going to walk straight past them, as if you haven't even noticed. It's only when they actually cry out that he appears to change his mind and help them. So when I first heard this read to me, everything within me wanted to know, how could love incarnate behave in such a manner? Surely you must see why I struggled to think of Jesus as the soul of compassion when I first heard this. Now, there's lots that you could talk about in this passage, but this morning, I want to talk about the answers that I discovered to my two questions. Firstly, why did Jesus not immediately set out to rescue the disciples once he had seen them in their peril? And secondly, why did he intend to pass them by when he had finally arrived at the boat? So let's start with why he didn't immediately set out to rescue them. Okay, so we know from verse uh, 46, that after saying farewell to his disciples, Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. And by the time he sees them straining at the oars, he has been there for some time. I would like to suggest that it wouldn't be too far-fetched to imagine that in, during this time, Jesus has been praying for his disciples, that they might grow in their faith and they might even recognize him. I'd further venture that he might not have seen them with his physical eyes, but with his spiritual eyes. After all, God often speaks to us in pictures. For instance, it was when Jesus saw Peter fishing in his boat that he prophetically spoke over him that he would be a fisher of men. Whether he saw them with his physical or his spiritual eyes, 
I now believe that when Jesus saw his disciples were struggling, he did immediately leap into action. But his rescue plan wasn't immediately a physical one, but a spiritual one. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. In this first century Jewish context, the sea held a metaphorical meaning. In Genesis 1, the sea is the primordial chaos preceding creation. And in the rest of the Old Testament, the sea is seen as being inhabited by evil. It was the home of the ancient sea monster Leviathan. And in Daniel, it's the place that the four beasts come out of. And in Revelation, it is the place where the beast with ten horns and seven heads comes from. When Jesus sees the disciples battling against the waves, he knows that their battle is both physical and spiritual. Whilst they seek physically to overcome the forces that are preventing them from reaching the other side of the lake, they are also battling spiritually with the forces that are preventing them from recognizing the one who they are following. I therefore suggest that between dusk and dawn, Jesus is battling tirelessly for his followers in prayer, doing in the spiritual what he would later do in the physical. And when at dawn, Jesus finally does step out, he does so already having claimed the victory, for he already won the battle in prayer. So to sum up my answer to the first question, I believe Jesus did immediately set out to rescue his disciples once he had seen their plight. But the battle began on his knees. So I now want to look at the second question. Why did Jesus intend to pass them by when he had finally arrived at the boat? As I mentioned earlier, like the squirrel anecdote, the story of Jesus walking on water also requires an answer. Who is it that I am describing? Like the vicar in the anecdote, Mark gives clues throughout his gospel about the person he is describing. He is the person who is more powerful than John the Baptist. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. Anybody got it yet? He cleanses lepers, forgives sins. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Surely you must have got it. He appoints 12 disciples mirroring the tribes of Israel. Nobody? Really? He stills a storm. He raises the dead. And now he walks on water. Please tell me I don't need to go on. When Mark tells us that Jesus walks on water... Any self-respecting Jew would understand that this was a massive clue. Who walks on water? Scripture answers this question loud and clear. In many different passages, God is praised for his mastery of the sea. For instance, in Job 38, um, it's, in Job 38 speaks of God or God's authority over the sea. And Psalm 107 declares, They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wit's end. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And even more incontrovertibly, Job states, 
God alone tramples the waves of the sea. When Jesus begins to walk on water, he does, not, does so not simply for an efficient way to cross the lake, which it definitely is, but he does so to fulfill scripture, to demonstrate his authority over the sea and all that it represents, to visually demonstrate what he came to earth to do, to take dominion over darkness and reclaim his rightful throne, and most notably to answer this question that has been asked to declare his divinity. So hopefully that explains why he walked on water, but the question as to why he acted as if he intended to pass them by in verse 48 remains. This stands out as a really strange comment for Mark to make. That is, it stands out as strange if you happen to be a 21st century Brit. Mark usually chooses his words very carefully. He, after all, has to condense weeks of work into a few sentences. So why choose to include such an apparently insignificant detail? However, if you happen to be a first century Jew, this little throwaway comment should have rung a lot of bells. This is the, and it has a big bushy tail answer. It alludes to some of the texts that they would have been most familiar with, texts that speak about God's self-revelation. For instance, when Moses first sees the glory of God in Exodus 33, God first passes by, and then he proclaims his name. It says, And the Lord says, I will call all, cause all my God goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. And then later on in Exodus 34, the most quoted verse in all scripture, after receiving the replacement stone tablets inscribed with the law, Moses had another encounter with the Lord. Yet again, God passes in front of Moses and then proclaims his name. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving witness, wickedness, rebellion and sin. By passing in front of Moses, the Lord, the Lord revealed his divinity to him. And by saying his name, he revealed his core identity. When in verse 48, Mark tells us that Jesus intends to pass them by, he uses exactly the same verb that is found in Exodus. I'm going to try and say it, but I can't promise you it sounds anything like it's meant to, but it's written like this. Parer chomai. He deliberate, is deliberately referencing God's self-revelation. But that's not all. After God has passed by Moses, on both occasions he proclaims his name. And you will notice his name is translated as the Lord. In the Old Testament, the Lord is used in place of the Hebrew name Yahweh, meaning I am, as a way of honoring Israel's tradition of not pronouncing or spelling God's name. The actual word spoken Yahweh means I am. So when in verse 50, after having passed by the disciples, Jesus tells them, take heart, it is I. He is saying, ego am I, the Greek for I am. 
He is using the same words used by God when he passed in front of Moses. Jesus is making a direct assertion to his deity for anybody who has eyes to see or ears to hear. So to answer the question, why does Jesus intend to pass them by? It is in order to reveal his true identity. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on water, in spite of the endless clues, they didn't seem to recognize him. They thought he was a ghost, or it may even have been that they thought he was an evil spirit from the sea. Like the vicar in the story about the squirrel, Jesus must have begun to wonder what he needed to say to, or do to help them to see the blindingly obvious. When I first heard this story, I thought Jesus' behavior demonstrated that he didn't care. But in fact, the reverse is true. By all he says and by all he does, Jesus demonstrates his compassion and proves that he is indeed love incarnate. As I think of those disciples in their boat, far away from the shore, exhausted and dispirited as they wrestled against the waves, and crying out to God in their troubles with absolutely no sign of rescue, I can't but help but suspect that I would have thought, like I first did when I heard this story, that their prayers were falling on deaf ears, that their God didn't care. They might even have felt resentful towards Jesus as he was the one who ordered them out onto the lake for the first, in the first place and was notably absent in their time of need. In truth, I'm afraid I think of them like that because I know from personal experience that has been my reaction. Life as a Christian isn't always plain sailing. In each of our lives, there will be times when we find ourselves besieged by the storms of life and crying out to a seemingly absent and indifferent God. But I believe if we learn anything from this passage, it is no matter how far away we are from the shore or how bumpy the seas we are facing, we are never alone. Our God sees us in our struggles, and he doesn't stand idly by. We may not see him, but we can be sure he is battling on our behalf. It may be that the answer to our pleas for help is not immediate, but that for a time, while Jesus battles on his knees on the shore, he allows us to participate in the battle ourselves on the waters. But as we reel and stagger in the storm, we should know for certain that the one who champions us from the shore is the one who has dominion over darkness and that he loves us so much that he gave his very life for us. I wanted to um, finish by telling you a, a story. I've just been at New Wine for a day and a half. And um, during that time, I was praying for people in some of the ministry slots. And uh, normally, um, what I would do is I would look at the people asking for prayer and I'd look to see what the Spirit's already doing, where he's already moving and I would go there and pray for that person. But on this occasion I saw this girl and she looked so um, overcast and um, unhappy and I really felt God asked me to go and pray for her. I wasn't particularly enthusiastic because it looked like it was going to be quite hard work. So I went over and um, 
it, we, we were praying for physical healing and she was sort of standing like this and she said her shoulder was really painful, her back was really painful, her pelvis was really painful and she had one leg longer the other than the other. She also told me um, she had been a Muslim until very recently and just converted to Christianity. So I prayed for her for some time and I asked her if um, she had received any healing or she felt anything at all um, and her English wasn't that great but it became clear the answer was no <laughs> so I kept going for a while and then I thought about it that my friend Johnny Nimmo was there he's um, come over from Germany and I happen to know that he's prayed for several people who've got one leg shorter than the other and he's seen their legs grow so I said would you wait here one minute I'm going to bring in reinforcements so I've got my friend Johnny to come over and pray and he made her walk up and down and then he got to, her to sit on a chair and put her back as far back as it could and she straightened out her legs and clearly one leg was longer than the other and then he got her to get up and walk up and down again and we prayed and she sat down and stretched out her legs and uh, basically the leg grew and they came to the same length that happened in front of our eyes the the lady was completely flabbergasted um, I have to say when she stood up she still looked a bit skewed so I'm not saying whether she was a hundred percent um, here, but she told me she had no pain in her legs, her, her hips, her back, her shoulder. Um, and to me, so often, we wrestle against things that aren't so obvious as the sea. We, we wrestle against physical pain or emotional pain or relationships, and it's never really clear. But God is with us, and sooner or later, he gets in the, in the boat and helps us with our storm. So I just say that as a way of encouragement to you. So let's pray.